Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Republicans this morning again failed to elect a new speaker after Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan was unable to secure the votes needed on a second ballot. The inability of the Republican House majority to govern is happening at a terrible time. Quote, the world is on fire, says Princeton historian and political analyst Julian Zelzer. The Israel-Hamas war rages, as does Russia's war on Ukraine, and the nation faces the prospect of a government shutdown next month. Yet back in Washington, Congress cannot do its work of allocating defense spending or negotiating a funding compromise. We talk with Zelzer and others about how a party that cannot govern hurts us all and what can be done about it. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan has again failed to secure enough votes to ascend to the speakership when several Republican holdouts denied him the gavel. And now it's even more unclear if Jordan, the hard-right Trump ally and election denier, will ultimately prevail. But here's Oklahoma Representative Tom Cole making the case for Jordan today. I don't think anybody in here on any issue of any substance would have to guess where Jim Jordan is going to stand. He doesn't deceive. He doesn't dissemble. He simply tells you straight up, this is what I believe, this is why I think it's the right thing to do for the country, and that's what I'm going to try and accomplish, and I'm going to work with you in any way that I can to do it. In the meantime, House Democrats rallied around Hakeem Jeffries, and here's California Congressman Pete Aguilar explaining why Jordan is the wrong choice. We shouldn't be surprised at the vote count. I noted yesterday the legislative acumen of the gentleman from Ohio. Would it surprise anyone that in addition to not passing a single piece of legislation, he's never put a piece of legislation that has made it to a committee? The Speaker of the House must be a legislator. And the gentleman from Ohio falls short in that regard. He supports an extreme agenda and is hell-bent on banning abortion nationwide. For the latest, we turn now to Joan E. Greaves, senior political reporter for The Guardian. Joan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So it appears Jordan, Jim Jordan has done worse on today's second ballot than he did yesterday. Tell us what happened. Yes, that's right. So yesterday in the first round of voting, uh, Jim Jordan saw 20 of his Republican colleagues vote uh, against him. And today we actually saw 22 of the of Republicans uh, vote against Jordan. So there were a couple pickups for Jordan. Uh, there were a couple members who initially voted against him who decided to uh, support him today. 
But there were also four Republicans who had supported him yesterday who voted against him on this second ballot. So Mm -hmm. overall, a net loss of two. And it seems like things are just moving in the exact wrong direction for Jim Jordan. And do you have any insight into why that happened? Well, heading into the vote yesterday, we knew that some of Jordan's support was quite um, uh, tepid, I would say, among some uh, members of the Mm -hmm. Republican conference. Uh, For example, uh, one uh, representative uh, indicated that she um, uh, would vote for Jordan on the first ballot, but did not clarify as to what she would do on subsequent ballots if uh, those ballots ended up happening. And today we did see that representative... uh, Miller Meeks of uh, Iowa indeed uh, vote uh, against Jordan today. So it seems like some people who might have been somewhat skeptical of Jordan initially took the fact that he could not win on the first ballot as a sort of permission slip to vote against him on the second ballot. So if opposition is potentially increasing, what is his next step, Jim Jordan's? Well, right now, we believe that uh, House Republicans are about to go into a conference meeting to sort of uh, discuss what their next steps are going to look like. One idea that has been floated by um, some members, uh, some of the more moderate members who oppose Jordan, as as well as some House Democrats, is to temporarily expand the powers of the acting speaker, who is Patrick McHenry of North Carolina. And that expansion of powers would theoretically allow him to take up vital legislation including potentially a, an aid package for Israel and uh, also a uh, potentially a stopgap funding bill, because, of course, government funding is now running out in less than a month. And if the standoff uh, stretches into mid-November, then we could be facing a double crisis of a house that has been uh, brought to a standstill because it has no speaker and a government that is shut down because Congress is unable to pass a funding bill. It sounds like some Democrats are proposing that they would or suggesting that they would support that expanded powers for Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry. McHenry, what can you tell us about the Republican from North Carolina? So I would say that um, Congressman McHenry is very much a um, he's a party guy. Right. You know, he uh, he really does uh, support the uh, House Republican leadership. Uh, He was a strong ally of uh, Kevin McCarthy, the former speaker who was removed earlier this month. And in fact, it was because of that uh, close relationship that he was named as the acting speaker. McCarthy had an opportunity to uh, designate who would serve as the temporary speaker when he was removed. And he chose McHenry for that role. And what we know about him is that from what so far he has said, he does not really have much interest in, uh, he has said, in uh, being uh, a a temporary uh, kind of uh, gatekeeper of the House to keep things running. You know, he has said that he really wants House Republicans to choose a speaker to not enter into any sort of agreement with House Democrats. He really wants the uh, conference to be able to come together and elect a new leader in a way that doesn't, uh, uh, in, a, in a way that doesn't uh, kind of uh, present a uh, only a piecemeal approach to, you know, uh, giving him more powers for you know, three months at a time or what have you. Yeah. Given that and given the fact that Jordan is struggling, what other Republicans could potentially enter the running? Are you hearing anything on that, Joan? Well, one name that is kind of perpetually thrown out there is um, Congressman Tom Cole of Oklahoma, Oklahoma, who is the uh, House Rules Committee chairman. Um, But uh, 
Congressman Cole himself has uh, said that he has no interest in the job. And he, in fact, uh, delivered the nominating speech for uh, Jim Jordan today. So I think he's really trying to send a signal that he is not uh, going to serve in that role of a sort of um, a uh, compromise speaker that uh, potentially Republicans and some uh, centrist Democrats could rally around. So if Cole is not interested in the job uh, and McHenry says that he would like to see a permanent speaker, I think it's pretty unclear at this point as to who uh, who could potentially end the standoff. Of course, you know, some uh, allies of Kevin McCarthy have floated the idea of bringing him back to the speaker's yes. chair. But it is very unclear that any of the opposition to McCarthy, which removed him from that job, has eased at all. So does he have the 217 votes that he needs to become speaker right now? It doesn't look like it. But if is there anyone who has 217 votes right now? We really don't know. Yeah. Well, House Democrats have rallied behind Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York, who, as I understand it, was able to get 212 votes today, as he did yesterday to Jordan's 199, though, of course, that falls short of the 217 needed. But is there any scenario where Jeffries could get those additional votes and become speaker? I think we're not there yet, at least I will say. I, the uh, more moderate members of the House Republican Conference who have opposed Jordan have so far really not given any indication that they are willing to support Jeffries, at least at this moment. And also a lot of those members were quite uh, frustrated uh, that uh, House Democrats uh, voted against, uh, uh, voted for, voted to remove McCarthy as speaker. So I think that that that, that uh, development made them particularly hesitant to uh, support Jeffries in a sort of compromise government. And of course, I should say that, you know, House Democrats really reject that, you know, um, that blame because they say that historically the opposing party has never really helped their, you know, their, um, the, the other party uh, elect a speaker. And that that is true. You know, consistently history shows that each party votes for their speaker nominee. And that's what Democrats did. And so, uh, so yes, it, right now there seems to be a fair amount of bad blood between the um, more moderate members of the Republican conference and Hakeem Jeffries. So unless that eases, it's hard to envision uh, Jeffries becoming a speaker in a sort of compromise uh, situation. Well, John, before I let you go, do you have any idea when the House could elect a speaker? I think if there is any sort of uh, immediate solution, it probably involves some kind of deal that does expand the powers of uh, Patrick McHenry. Mm. Other than that, if uh, any other solution, it seems like would take uh, far more time to uh, to uh, materialize because these these 20 or so Republicans who oppose Jordan are really not showing any indication that they are even willing to negotiate with jo Jordan. You know, they they really seem adamant. They simply do not want him to become Speaker of the House. And so with that in mind, you know, it seems like unless there is a deal reached to expand the powers of Patrick McHenry, I don't know that there is any immediate way out of this impasse. Joan E. Grieve, senior political reporter for The Guardian U.S. Really appreciate having you on today. Yes, we're thank you so much. We're talking about the leadership vacuum in the House of Representatives after the latest vote for a new speaker failed on the House floor. And I want to bring into the conversation now Julian Zelzer, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University, also a political analyst for CNN. Julian, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure to be with you. So what are the consequences of the paralysis we're seeing in the House that Joan just described? Well, I mean, there's many effects. One is simply to tie up the House in this decision, as opposed to other issues uh, that we would rather have the House be dealing with. 
ranging from uh, funding the government to dealing with the unfolding uh, military situations overseas uh, to matters that are long-term issues that the nation faces. And all of that is pushed aside. The other consequence is just facing the prospect of a government shutdown in November in the middle of all this. I think the longer this takes, the more difficulty um, that the Republicans are having, the less time there is to resolve that. Uh, and the math will be the same as it was before, uh, before a shutdown actually takes place. So there's many very real consequences. And this taking place simultaneously with what's happening in the Middle East, I think, makes very clear uh, why we do need leadership uh, in in the House uh, yeah. and not no leadership. After today's vote, is Jim Jordan done or do you think far from it? What's your reaction to what happened this morning? Well, you never count people out. Uh, obviously, Jordan wants the numbers to go up, not down. And there's clearly blowback uh, to the kind of pressure he's been applying. But I wouldn't count him out just because there's no other obvious solution at this time. So when you have that uncertainty, everyone is still in the mix from him to even Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. And when you talk about the pressure that he's been asserting, can you just give us a sense of what his approach has been and why it may be backfiring at this moment, at least? Well, he was already putting pressure this weekend on members to fall in line behind him. The idea of doing the roll call yesterday was to force people to put their position on paper and then you know, be able to have electoral pressure on those who said no. Um, but I think there are enough doubts about him within the Republican caucus, even with very conservative members, uh, that some don't appreciate that. And there's also just the personal elements. There are people who were loyal to Scalise, who don't understand why Jordan, despite losing that original vote, is now a front runner for the week. And I'm sure some of McCarthy's uh, supporters also feel pretty bitter about what they did. Well, I want to invite listeners to join the conversation. What are reactions? What are your reactions to the latest attempt to elect a speaker failing? How do you feel about the turmoil in the House of Representatives right now? What concerns does it raise for you? What questions do you have? 866-733-6786, the number. Reach us on our social channels at KQED Forum. Email us, forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this morning about the leadership vacuum that remains in the House of Representatives, the paralysis that remains at the House of Representatives. The latest vote for a new speaker failed today with the nominee of Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. You, our listeners, are sharing your reactions and can do so at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or by posting on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. Julian Zelzer is with us, a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. His most recent books include Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, and Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. And listeners are weighing in. Julian Beth writes, I'm really concerned that the Republicans have not been able to get a sane House leader elected because it leaves the country in an unstable, vulnerable position since nothing can get done. God forbid we have another 9-11 or a natural disaster that would require government funding, which the House would have to pass. Julian, you did a piece uh, in for CNN where you said if and when Republicans finally string together enough votes to elect a House Speaker, the outlook for progress will likely still be bleak. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, the situation that former Speaker McCarthy faced doesn't disappear, uh, meaning the combination of a very narrow majority, a faction of hardliners within a pretty hardline party that will be just as determined to stand their ground and uh, potentially no change in the rules, which will give them leverage, the small faction, uh, to remove the next speaker. So uh, all of that math uh, is still going to face whoever is in charge ne- next and give them very little leeway to move away um, from that faction as they try to pass a spending bill that the White House and Democrats in the Senate can agree to. Can you tell us about Jim Jordan, the nominee right now, who at least is garnering the most votes, as far as we know, (laughs) uh, with regard to becoming the next Speaker of the House? How did he ascend to influence in his party? Through through the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus, he really precedes uh, uh, Donald Trump, former President Trump. Uh, He was part of uh, a new generation of Republicans from he's from Ohio uh, and and he comes in um, office. And after Obama is president and the Tea Party comes to town, he aligns themselves with him. And he's uh, at the top of the Freedom Caucus, which forms during the Obama presidency. And he becomes a loud voice uh, supporter of investigation, um, including the Benghazi investigation. He is someone who is more than willing uh, to traffic in conspiracy theory, smear and allegation. And then during the Trump presidency, even though he has very minimal uh, of a record in terms of legislation, really almost nothing, uh, he's one of the former president's staunchest supporters, including after the 2020 election and the effort to overthrow it. So he firmly aligned himself at all these stages with the new Republican Party, then with President Trump. And through all of that, he really ingratiated himself, I think, with the new generation of MAGA Republicans who have come into office. Yes. And when we say that he was involved in the efforts to subvert the 2020 election results, can you talk a little bit about what they uncovered, not least of which was that he led a conference call with other members of Congress to specifically discuss delaying the joint session on January 6th to certify the electoral votes? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, the multiple investigations, but certainly the one that was done through Congress uh, revealed that, revealed uh, what you didn't need from the committee, many statements that he made throughout uh, talking about what was going on uh, and being really at the heart of the Republicans who are working with the administration to figure out ways to make make this happen, um, you know, including ideas about changing uh, the delegates for different states and voting against the certification of the Electoral College results. So he was front and center in the Republican congressional part of the Republican effort after 2020 to uh, change change the result. The other thing is, is there's also a scandal looming Around him, several wrestlers he previously coached at Ohio State spoke out just last week to say that Jordan shouldn't be Speaker of the House. Can you just remind us what that's all about? Sure. I mean, this this scandal has uh, been discussed for a while when he was a wrestling coach, um, which for some might bring back memories of another wrestling coach who was Speaker, Denny Hastert. Uh, the allegations <laughs> are that he basically turned his eye uh, toward students saying that there was a physician uh, abusing them, sexually abusing them, and that he did nothing. And those statements have come back. I believe uh, there's a film uh, either being made or coming out where you can hear those allegations as well. And and so far, he survived the scandal, um, but it's out there. And I think a lot of Republicans know that. Uh, and I'm sure some are concerned about what would happen should he be speaker. And that comes out again uh, in the near future. Well, Bill writes, it's starting to look like bringing back Kevin McCarthy isn't the least realistic option. I don't know if you want to respond to that or if Bill is being rhetorical, but, uh, you know, it is something that Guardian political reporter Joan Grieve, you know, mentioned as as one possibility, though maybe somewhat remote. What do you think, Julian? I, I, I think, again, everything is on the table now. I, I don't think the well, one thing she was discussing was the idea of Jeffrey's uh, kind of winning this and that's still hard to see. The cost to a Republican for voting for a Democratic speaker is so high that in every district they would be vulnerable. But certainly bringing McCarthy back, I don't think is impossible. Expanding the power of the current temporary speaker, McHenry, who's kind of uh, a more moderate uh, part of the party caucus is possible. That's the easiest fix. It's a Band-Aid solution until a speaker is elected that allows the House to function. Uh, but again, I don't count out other candidates, including Jordan. I think this is a very dynamic story, and we'll see in the next few hours how this unfolds. Yeah. Uh, well, let me go to some calls. And again, that number 866-733-6786, if you want to join the conversation with your thoughts or reactions to the attempts to elect a House Speaker, the Republican Party, turmoil uh, in terms of its inability to govern and find somebody to lead the majority. We're talking with Julian Zelzer, Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton and a political analyst. Let me go to Phil in Burlingame. Phil, you're on. Hi. Um under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, it prohibits anyone who's previously taken an oath of, of office, like senators, representatives, from holding public office if they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the U.S. Jim Jordan was part of the insurrection. He was part of the ones that were trying to illegally tell Pence to not vote. And uh, could, could you explain how that 
provision would get activated? And how is it possible that an insurrectionist may take over the House? Mm. Phil, thanks. Julian? Oh, and some would say might be reelected as president. I mean, so it's it's a similar issue. <laughs> and uh, implementing this um, is is the real question of how this would work. So it's not only a question that obviously Jordan and his supporters would deny that they are insurrectionists. So that's problem one, you know, proving that. Uh, but the second problem is then implementing it, um, which would happen through through the House that controls its own membership. And I don't know, I just, I, I've heard the arguments, but in both cases, there's still not a lot of momentum uh, to use that. Some legal experts say it's problematic and it's not clear cut how this would work. Uh, so so I think those opponents of his, uh, their best bet, obviously, is to hold the no vote rather than depending on the 14th Amendment. Well, Julian, I've heard a couple of things about the potential election impact of a Jordan speakership, one of them being that it would be really helpful to Donald Trump, given not only his alliance with him, but he would have the power to really target uh, the Democratic presidential candidate Biden, which he's already involved in with regard to the impeachment inquiry and so on. Do you think that this would really be helpful to a candidate Trump? It might be helpful to candidate Trump and harmful to the Republican majority in the House, meaning I think if Jordan is the speaker, there's little doubt that he will serve as a foundation for the Trump reelection campaign. He will use his power to continue launching investigations and more into the Biden administration and trying to smear the president as much as possible. But and this is a cost I'm sure many Republicans are thinking about. Democrats are already uh, very clear that they are going to tie the Republican Party to Jim Jordan, who is radical, extreme, both on policy and in terms of strategy, and try to use that to win in in the New York districts, for example, that went Republican, but uh, are barely Republican. So I think Republicans are trying to uh, balance that. I think some might conclude if Jordan's not speaker, they still can do damage uh, in in the House, even without him at the top. Um, but for sure, Trump, who endorsed Jordan, is counting on him in the next few years to investigate, investigate, investigate. Yeah. Well, Stephen writes, I don't understand why the Democrats are not working harder to find and back a moderate Republican they can vote for and work with for speaker. In the same vein, Scott writes, we're talking politics, so let's not look away from the sausage making. Republicans would happily take advantage of a debacle of this scale if it were happening to Democrats. I would hope that Democrats are capitalizing on this opportunity. No one said that this would be pretty or civil. What do you think? I mean, do you think Democrats deserve any blame or or should take some responsibility for what we're seeing? Certainly, there have been some Republican commentators who've tried to pin it on Democrats saying that, you know, they were the ones who completely, you know, voted against McCarthy and, and voted against some stability. Uh, not really. That's how it works. This is a Republican <laughs> problem. And there's no way I could imagine Republicans helping out Democrats in this situation. That is uh, how the current Congress works, very polarized and uh, the Republicans have the capacity to elect the speaker. Uh, they have the numbers. They just have to agree on someone. Uh, and those who are really oppositional on everything have to relent. 
So I, I don't actually think uh, this is something that Democrats can be blamed for. This is the, about the Republican House and keeping their own House in order, which has implications for the nation's House. Well, the listener writes, I'm surprised and disappointed that Jim Jordan's alleged negligence regarding the Ohio athletes' allegations isn't getting more attention. This, combined with support of the attempt to overturn the 2020 election, renders him completely unacceptable to be the second person in line for the presidency. Can the House GOP honestly not come up with a better candidate? Lee writes, are there any moderate Republicans left in the House that might align with Democrats to elect a speaker who could get things moving? Julian, your thoughts on that? I mean, I think, you know, McHenry is is the closest, meaning the current temporary speaker expanding the powers or maybe McCarthy, uh, although McCarthy is not really that moderate uh, and he still tends to align uh, with the most conservative position. So I'm not sure who this person is who Democrats can reach out to. That's the challenge. Uh, nor uh, am I sure that person would be able to withstand their own caucus. Uh, so that's why this situation is so fraught. There is no ideal person out there that would make that uh, alternative come true. We're talking about what happens now that the Republican majority has been unable to elect a speaker. The second vote for Jim Jordan failed again today. And we're taking your questions about next steps and about what has transpired so far as we enter the third week without a Speaker of the House, the third most powerful person in the U.S. and arguably the world. We're talking with Julian Zelizer, a political analyst and a professor of history and public affairs at Princeton. And I'd like to bring into the conversation now Lee Drutman, author and senior fellow at the Political Reform Program at New America. Lee, thanks so much for being with us. Pleasure to join the conversation. What a, what a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you want to say a few words about the moment we're in or your reaction to it, Lee. It's uh, really special for the U.S. Congress to be having this much trouble. I mean, there have been various moments when when leadership has been contested like this in U.S. history, but certainly this this ranks near the most special. Yeah. You have really looked at the history of the House speakership, and it has changed and adapted a lot over time. Can you talk a little bit about how we got to the kind of House speaker role that we have now, this modern role? Well, I'll try, I'll try to do this quickly. So the Constitution says very little about the role of the speaker, just that the House should choose a speaker. Perhaps the framers had the idea of a British House of Commons speaker in mind when they wrote that into the Constitution. We don't know for sure that the House of Commons has a speaker who just uh, acts as basically a presiding officer. And that's how the first few speakers worked in the U.S. House. Uh, Henry Clay is the first speaker to really take the power of the speakership and and make it into something more than just a presiding officer. He's a, he's a partisan. He's a, an orator. He's a, a powerful force after Clay. Speakership goes back to a, a kind of more presiding officer role uh, up, up through you know the, the late 1880s, it's clear that the power is really in committees and the floor is a little chaotic. And then in 1890, Thomas Brackett Reed, who's a Republican uh, leader, 
decides that it's time to put power in the speakership and the Republican caucus of 1890 uh, goes along with uh, what what's now remembered as the as the Reed rules in which he just really centralizes power yeah. and that that is kind of the model of the the modern powerful speaker however it doesn't last very long uh 20 years later in 1910 Joseph Cannon who takes on the, the czar-like role of the speakership is cast aside by insurgents in his own party who are unhappy these are progressive republicans who work with democrats they they spend a, f- a few years really working together as a group plotting their their takeover uh, or of of congress uh and you know finally through procedural cleverness managed to to get Joseph Cannon off what is then a powerful rules committee and you have in the 20s and 30s, you have kind of a back and forth. Nick Longworth, as a Republican in 1925, is a powerful speaker. But interestingly, he works closely with the Democratic uh, leader, uh, uh, Dwight Nance Garner, who later becomes the vice president under FDR uh, to run the House. Now, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, the, the speakership is is pretty residual. Democrats have big majorities, but you have a conservative coalition that really operates through the House Rules Committee. Uh, this starts to become intolerable to liberals within the Democratic Party. As liberals gain the upper hand in the Democratic Party in the early 70s, they start finding ways around the committees, they develop a subcommittee's bill of rights to cut out the committee chairs. They vote out some of the conservative committee chairs. Eventually, they start empowering the speaker. Tip O'Neill in the 80s becomes a more powerful speaker. Jim mm-hmm. Wright becomes an even more powerful speaker in the late 80s. And this incenses a young Republican named Newt Gingrich, who's mm-hmm. very unhappy, uh, <laughs> organizes the Conservative Opportunity Society. And then takes over the speakership, centralizes power more than we, we are in the current era of very centralized, powerful speakers. Uh, but there's nothing in the Constitution that says the speaker has to have the powers that it does. Congress yeah. has often been run through a rules committee, uh, which determines how bills get to the floor and under what rules. Well, much of the tactics that we are seeing now uh, can be basically connected to Newt Gingrich. And after the break, we'll talk more about why you think maybe a decentralizing or diminishing of power for the House Speaker might actually help with this upheaval that we're seeing. Again, we're talking with Lee Drutman and Julian Zelzer, and you, our listeners, about the leadership vacuum in the House. Stay with us for more. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is for my Mina Kim. The latest vote for a new speaker failed today, and we are entering the third week without a speaker of the House. We're talking about it with Julian Zelzer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton, and Lee Drutman, author and senior fellow at the Political Reform Program at New America. And we're talking about it with you, our listeners. What are your questions, your comments to what is happening? What are your worries about what is happening? What do you see as possible ways of getting out of it? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, at KQED Forum, or call us 866-733-6786, Steve writes, the House Republicans should consider going outside the House itself for its next speaker. Perhaps they could choose someone who would appreciate the exposure of this position, such as Republican candidate for president Nikki Haley. Another possibility would be to go for someone who should command the respect of all House Republicans, like former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. Lee, you are suggesting that the House speakership is in its current form too powerful. What would an alternative be and and why could it potentially end sort of the recent upheaval that we have been seeing with regard to the House speakership? Well, the speakership has become such a powerful prize that the uh, contestation over who gets it becomes so uh, bitter and, and fraught. Uh, when you have a big prize that has a lot of power, people are uh, really invested in who gets that prize. Now, th- there are many ways in which the House has operated over its uh, more than 200-year history. Uh, there have been various moments when the Speaker played a much more marginal role and uh, and a rules committee uh, decided which bills came to the floor and when. There have been various periods in which the individual committees had more prerogative uh, over bringing bills to the floor. There there have been various moments. And one, one moment that uh, I've been thinking about a, a bit lately, it's actually in 1931 when Congress was essentially tied, uh, a, a rump group uh, demanded that we that Congress liberalized the discharge petition uh, to allow uh, groups of members to uh, basically sign a petition to bring bills to the floor that the Rules Committee uh, was not allowing to come to the floor, uh, and you know that, that's something that we have now. If if uh, 218 members sign a petition to bring a bill to the floor, they can, and that's something that's been talked about a little bit in the, the various uh, shutdown threats, although it, right now the rules are very difficult, but you could imagine that as, a, as another way to uh, allow majorities within the chamber uh, to, to organize, to bring legislation to the floor. But fundamentally, the challenge is how do you regulate what bills come to the floor under what rules and when, and you need some process for doing that, uh, the the current solution has been to give those powers very strongly to the speaker who basically controls the rules committee uh but the rules committee could act more independently of the speaker 
uh, discharge petitions could be used more. So there are a lot of ways to organize a legislature. There are very many state legislatures have weaker speakerships and various bipartisan governing agreements. Uh, so we should have a little bit more imagination sure. in how we think about running the House. But doesn't a more decentralized process require parties to at least seek some common ground? We have such an incredibly polarized situation right now. I, I'm not sure how this would work. Uh, therein lies the rub, right? I mean, it, it would be it, it would be it would be chaotic, which is why most members don't want it. Uh, perhaps we'd we'd find a new equilibrium, new opportunities would open up. But when there, there's this fundamental challenge that when you have two parties that are as polarized and opposed as the two parties are now, and you have majorities that are narrow, uh, both sides tend to want somebody to organize and lead them in this collective fight, right? I mean, the, the speakership is a is not so much a, a leader as a as almost a, a service role. I mean, the, the speaker is really uh, doing a service to members of the the majority party by helping them to coordinate collective action of acting as a coherent caucus in in this period, and yet they're so incoherent and disorganized that it's really become an impossible job. So in this moment, there's really kind of no good solution. Mm. Uh, and, that, and that's that's the challenge of, of the chaos playing out this well, week this on is, the House floor. Yeah. The Cisner writes, there's clearly a flaw in the process for electing speaker because it doesn't allow for a guaranteed resolution. The process for selecting a speaker needs to change so that resolution of some kind is guaranteed. It just drives me nuts that people of either party can't bring themselves to vote for someone of the other party. Partisanship is toxic. How about voting as an American for the good of the country? Let me go to Rob in Richmond. Rob, you're on. Hi, Julian and Nina. Uh, you know, I was a lifelong Democrat till Trump came down the escalator. Then my partner and I, later my husband, uh, turned to each other and, and decided we're all in. And I'm still all in. He's got so many flaws. Maybe he's even a psychopath, but he's our psychopath, like they used to say about Samosa, our bastard. But the thing is, he, the policies, it's about the policies. I won't say it's stupidos. No, I'm not going to say that. But the thing is, your your whole assessment today is belied and, and reversed and overthrown by one poll by liberal NBC recently. 43 to 35 percent plurality of Americans. That's a nine-point difference. Uh, the GOP, the Republicans, are better than Democrats at protecting, quote, protecting our constitutional rights. Similarly, much closer, but still, uh, the GOP is ahead, 37 to 36 the Republicans are better than Democrats at protecting our democracy. That's from an NBC recent poll. Well, so, Rob, thanks for sharing those poll numbers, but I'm not sure one poll makes for what is the truth of the situation, though. Julian, is Rob right in any way? Well, um, no, I would. I, I haven't seen that poll, um, and I don't take one poll uh, as indicative of a trend, so I, I, but I don't even know the details of the poll, but that's a little hard um, to believe that that would be broadly representative. There's there's many polls uh, showing very different outcomes, um, even for those who don't like President Biden, for example, uh, about the trust in him and the Democratic Party. There's lots of polls on specific issues where the Democrats are more in line with a majority 
than uh, the Republicans are. And again, after what happened in 2020, um, I would be suspicious that those results are really reflective. And, and let's remember, Trump lost um, and, and he lost the presidency. He didn't win it. Uh, so uh, I'm not sure uh, I would agree with that caller. Well, uh, Jeff writes, what can never be lost sight of is that the third in line for the presidency must be somebody who believes in the nonviolent transfer of power in a democracy. Jordan still believes in the big lie. I hope the sane Republicans can hold the line and eventually retake their party in order to bring forth fair and reasonable leadership and ideas. And Paul writes, I agree with other listeners that Jim Jordan should be tried in court alongside the ex-president and the January 6th foot soldiers for trying to interfere with an election result. Can't believe he could almost be speaker let me go next to Ann in Mountain View. Ann, you're on. Hi. Um, so I'm referring to an article or a series of articles in the Washington Post recently about expanding the size of the House. And I'm wondering if that is a way forward, because, I mean, the size of the House is set by a 1929 law. You know, we have 435 people. It's not the Constitution that set that. It's a law. And um, people in states like California have been over time represented less and less well. You know, the Constitution says we're supposed to be proportionally represented in the House, but a representative in California represents like 200,000 more people than a representative in Wyoming. It's, it's um, I mean, wouldn't individual citizens simply challenging that law in the courts um, to expand the size of the House, you know, it, 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 and if it was larger and more representative, more representative of the population, wouldn't it be harder for a minority extreme to take control again? And I say this because, um, you know, if the size of the House is expanded, let's not forget that the Electoral College is in large part calculated by the number of electors each state has, which is, I mean, but the number of representatives each has, you know, that if, if California got 17 more electors, that would be, you know, <laughs> more constitutional, and it would change the power dynamic. What do you think, Lee? Should the House be expanded? And what Anne is saying, I mean, there are many people have brought up the, the proportional representation issues in the Congress. Yeah, well, you're talking to the right person. I'm, I'm co-author of a report uh, with the American Academy of Arts and Sciences called The Case for Expanding the House, in which we argue that the House should expand to about 700 members. And you know, there are good reasons for this, uh, currently House districts are about 765,000 uh, people on average, which is extremely large, and you know, members do become uh, distant from their constituents. So I think there is tremendous value in increasing the size of the House, and, and I've actually been surprised how much interest there is uh, on the Hill in this idea. A lot of a lot of members of Congress are actually quite quite supportive of this idea, though it's not moving this Congress. But, you know, the, the thing that I'm more excited about, and I think it, it is actually really transformative, is this idea of proportional representation at the party level. And to do that, you'd have to have multi-member districts. So you'd have multiple districts that are essentially combined into one larger district. 
and then the uh, the parties get a, a share of the district, uh, a larger district in proportion to the share of votes. So if a party gets 60% of the seats in a five-member district, they'd get three votes. Now, th this would be tremendously powerful for a number of reasons. One, it would basically make gerrymandering irrelevant because gerrymandering really relies on single-member districts. It would also create space for moderate Republicans to win who can't win in a single district, but could win maybe 20% of a larger district uh, would allow other parties. And, I, I, you know, frankly, I think it would allow for the kind of coalition government of a pro-democracy uh, majority of reasonable members of Congress that a lot of people are saying uh, we ought to see, right? I mean, there's a number of of you know what maybe they call themselves rational Republicans who are really fed up with the tactics of the extremist wing of their party. Problem is, they can't get elected by running as a rational Republican uh, because there's not enough rational Republican voters in any given district uh, to support them. Uh, so what they really should support and what they need and what the country needs is, is some form of modest proportional representation where a 20% party could be a 20% party and you can have that 65, 70% governing majority that, that we, you know, frankly should have on, on a lot of reasonable issues like funding the government, supporting our allies, uh, supporting <laughs> the fundamental peaceful transfer of power. Mm. Again, Lee Drutman is Senior Fellow of the Political Reform Program at New America, and his books include Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America. Julian Zelzer is a political analyst and professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University. His most recent books include Fault Lines, A History of the U.S. Since 1974. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Neil writes, this isn't all that hard to solve. If the Jordan opponents get their act together for a moment, if every congressperson who refuses to vote for Jordan would vote present in the next round of voting, Hakeem Jeffries would have a majority of votes cast and would become speaker without them having to be on the record as voting for a Democrat. Then they could govern as a bipartisan coalition and the right-wing extremists would get frozen out. Let me go to Chris in Santa Clara. Chris, you're on. Hey, um, thanks. Um, a question for the guests. You, you know, the word conservative maybe has changed in terms of its practical meaning over the years. And I'm, I'm curious, what do you believe that present conservatives are trying to conserve? Are they trying to go, you know, protect something they believe they now have? Or are they trying to implement something that no longer exists? Hmm. Uh, Chris, thanks. Along sort of similar lines, as listener writes, is my understanding correct that right-wing Republicans and their right-wing media celebrities have no faith in or need for government and want to burn government down? Um, <laughs> Julian, what are your thoughts on Chris's question about what it means to be a conservative and what are conservatives trying to preserve? Oh, I mean, look, in terms of policies, I think their menu of policies has been pretty clear on Kind of rolling back reproductive rights on deregulating uh, lots of the economy, supply side economics, border walls. I mean, all of this has been out there. And I think moderate and center, uh, I mean, moderate and right agree on a lot of this. It's just a matter of how far they're willing to go. There are some areas of dispute, such as trade, where I don't think you have as clear a conservative position as you did in the 1980s. But equally notable is not just the policies, it's the tactics. And I do think there in an age of polarization is a difference between 
uh, kind of what Republicans are willing to do and what Democrats are willing to do. It's often discussed as an asymmetry between the parties. And the last point you made gets to why that's the case. I do think Republicans are much more comfortable with dis dysfunction and gridlock because ultimately it is a party where government is not meant to be as central to American life. So they can sit with what's going on now much more easily than Democrats uh, with all their divisions who ultimately need and believe in government to function. And I think that gets to the core of a difference in, in how these kinds of disputes play out and the kinds of strategies that the parties embrace. Let me see if I can squeeze Jen in in San Jose. Jen, you're on. Hi. Um, I was wondering if the guest could answer a question about um, the last 40 years. Has there ever been a time when the Democrats have been in power where they have been um, sending the country into um, this uh, sort of disarray that we're under right now um, mm -hmm. by um, the Republican House? Because I heard earlier him say something about how, well, this happens all the time. So I'm wondering if there's any specific... Oh time period in the last 40 years that you could point to. Thank you. Oh, okay. Well, Jen, thanks. We just have a couple minutes, but my historians, um, <laughs> any anything similar uh, or comparable for Democrats, not uh, obviously in the, in the terms of the inability to elect House Speaker, but, but what would you like to say quickly, uh, Lee? Well, in the last 40 years, uh, th there hasn't been this on, on the Democratic side, Democrats have, have pretty easily figured out how to elect leaders. Now, there have been certainly some scandals on, on the Democratic leadership side uh, in in the 80s. Uh, but uh, since then, you know, Democrats basically have, you know, had Nancy Pelosi as their leader for a long time. Now, Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, you, you go back earlier in history and, and you find more chaos and disarray within the Democratic coalition. But recently, yeah. Democrats have been pretty unified. And this is unprecedented, right, Julian? Yeah, I mean, even when they are not unified, you saw this with Speaker Pelosi. Ultimately, they pick a speaker and they kind of get their act together. So that gets to the difference of the parties. And uh, I think that's part of what makes this moment so unpredictable. This is not a Republican Party that follows uh, the kinds of guidelines Democrats with all their divisions are going to follow. So there is no comparison. And, and that's why we come back to the issue that this is really a lot about the GOP as much as it is about the House more broadly. Well, Julian Zelzer, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton, and you can see his analysis on CNN and in other places. Lee Drutman, also really appreciate having your insights as well. Thank you. Senior Glad fellow, to be part of the conversation. Senior fellow of the Political Reform Program at New America and an author as well. My thanks to listeners for offering up their questions, concerns, and their solutions. And my thanks also to Susie Britton and Mark Nieto for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.